Well, good evening, Meadow Ranch. How are you guys? I hope you guys are having a good week. I know that, that I'm having a good week. My family's having a good week. It's been so much fun hanging out with you guys. My boys have had a blast. Thank you guys all for being so kind to them as you, as you see them around. Um, it's just been a blessing to be with you guys. Hey, before, I, before we jump in today, I just want to highlight something. Um, I think this has been announced, you know, I know we've said it to your counselors, but right over here between the two doors, there's a little thing that says Hume Lake Meadow Ranch questions. It looks like a national park sign over there. And that's a questions box. Tomorrow morning, Harry and I are going to be doing a Q&A, a question and answer. And um, we're going to be taking the questions out of, those out of that box and looking at them tonight. And then tomorrow morning at chapel, we're going to take some time to answer some of those questions. So um, even if it's during the... My, my, my sermon today, I, I want you to pay attention, but uh, if you have some, some questions, maybe about what we've been talking about, even what we cover tonight, um, or, or even just general questions that you'd like uh, Harry and I to answer, if you um, can write those down on a piece of paper, and then just before you leave chapel tonight, put them in the box over there, we're going to take them out tonight. Harry and I are going to look over them together, and, uh, and then we'll be answering some of those tomorrow morning. So can't guarantee we'll get to all of them, but it, if you have questions you want to write down, I just would encourage you to do that because uh, we, we want to answer them for you. So, um, all right, with that said, let's, uh, let's jump in this evening. So, we've been going through this narrative, this, this story of Daniel. And remember, I was, I was careful to say on Sunday night that when we say the story of Daniel, we don't mean that it's a fictional story. This is a real story. Daniel was a real guy who lived in a real place at a real point in time in history. The same is true for Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and everybody that we see in this story. All of these are real events that really happened in real history. Obviously, you have kind of the, the silly, fictionalized version of them that you guys see in the morning. I hope you guys are enjoying those. But the account that we get in Scripture, that is real, true facts of history. And um, on Sunday night and on Monday night, we really focused in on Daniel. Daniel was the key character in the part of the narrative that we looked at as he was taken away from his home, taken to this faraway place, and, and he had this temptation, right, this, this danger of going with the flow and, and eating this food that would have defiled him before God. But Daniel firmly decided he stood his ground and uh, he would not eat the king's food. And then last night, we kind of shifted gears from looking at Daniel to looking at his friends, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, who we know better as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had a similar temptation, right? They could have just bowed to the golden altar of the king, and they wouldn't have had any trials. But we talked about how God doesn't promise us a life free from trials. He promises us purpose, in our trials. He promises that he has a plan in our trials, and that was true for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they said, our God is able to save us, O king, but even if he doesn't, we still will not bow down to your golden idol. Well, today we're going to look at a different character, a character who's been present all throughout our time together so far, but who's kind of been in the background of it, Certainly not the protagonist, the main character of what we've been talking about, but something of an antagonist, the villain. Because tonight, I want us to look at the character of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. So who was Nebuchadnezzar? Well, Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful king in the world at this point in history. 
He ruled over the mightiest empire on the face of the earth. And right at the very beginning of Daniel chapter one, what we see is Nebuchadnezzar's mighty empire taking over yet another country, another culture, one of many that Babylon has taken over. They take over Judah, the nation of Judah. They take over um, the, the city of Jerusalem, and that's where Daniel comes from. That's where they take him away to this capital city of Babylon. And so we know that Nebuchadnezzar is this powerful king. He's incredibly powerful, incredibly wealthy, the most powerful and wealthy man on the face of the earth at this point in time. And we know that Nebuchadnezzar is driven by power and he's driven by his own ego. But what's interesting about Nebuchadnezzar is that there are a few times throughout the book of Daniel where this king who is obsessed with his own kingdom, obsessed with his own glory, obsessed with his own power, he says some pretty incredible things about Daniel's God, about the God of the Bible, about Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego's God, about the God who created all things with the power of his voice. Nebuchadnezzar says some incredible things about the real, true God. One of those things comes after Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's first dream, that dream of, of the statue with the head of gold, and, and Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar exactly what that means, and then listen to what Nebuchadnezzar says in response to Daniel's incredible interpretation of his dream by the power of God. Nebuchadnezzar says this in Daniel chapter 2, verse 47. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. So what does he say about God? He says that he is God of gods and that he is Lord of kings. He is a revealer of mystery. Nebuchadnezzar is saying that God is the greatest of all these many gods that he worships. He's the greatest of, of all of these gods that Nebuchadnezzar worships. He says that Daniel's God is the greatest. And this doesn't sound like someone who's saying the God of the Bible is the real only true and living God, it sounds like someone who's drafting a team. And he's going, hey, Dan, Daniel's God is pretty powerful. I want that God on my team. And so I'm gonna pay him some lip service. And so that's what he does. He says, Daniel's God is great. And then later, what does he do immediately after that? Immediately after, he declares that Daniel's God is the God of gods. The very next thing that Nebuchadnezzar does is he builds a statue of himself. He builds a statue of himself. He plates it in gold. And then what does he say? Everyone, everywhere, in all of my kingdom, in all of Babylon, this vast empire, they can no longer worship any other gods other than who? Daniel's God, right? No, 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 not at all. No, he says they can't worship any gods other than me. He's just gotten done saying that Daniel's God is the God of gods. And now he says, but you all, you can only worship me. And if you don't worship me, then you're getting thrown into the fiery furnace. And everyone goes along with it except for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They all go along with it except for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And when Nebuchadnezzar finds out the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are refusing to bow to him because instead they're bowing to the God that he has just said is the God of gods. 
What does Nebuchadnezzar do? Does he go, ah, oh, well, that's reasonable. I mean, that God did reveal my dream. What does he do? No, he's enraged. He's furious. He's so overcome by his anger that he has the furnace heated to seven times as hot as it normally burns. Guys, one times as hot as it normally burns is plenty sufficient to cook somebody. But he heats it up so much, so much that his guards die just by getting close enough to throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in. Because Nebuchadnezzar is so obsessed with himself, his ego is so huge that when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego hurt his ego, his response is furious anger. He has them thrown into the fiery furnace. But as we talked about last night, they weren't alone in the fiery furnace. He said that there were four men in there, one of them like a son of God. Many people have said that that is actually Jesus before the incarnation, before he's born in Bethlehem. They say that that, that one who was in there in the flame with them is Jesus himself. That's possible. It's possible. It's also just an angel of God, but one way or another, God's presence is there. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come out of the furnace with their clothes and their hair unsinged, not even smelling like smoke. I, I taught um, a, a seminar over in Ponderosa this morning, and I was standing next to a, a fire pit as I was teaching, and I, I, I took a shower, I changed, and I still smell like smoke. All right, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in the midst of that fiery furnace, and they came out not even smelling like smoke, much less burned. And then Nebuchadnezzar does the same thing he did after Daniel interpreted that dream. And he declares the power of the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We see this at the end of chapter 3. In chapter 3, starting in verse 28, it says this, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and yet and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid to ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. And the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. And then starting in chapter four, it says this, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Once again, Nebuchadnezzar is talking about how great the God of the Bible is. He's talking about how great the God of Daniel is, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is. But here's the thing. See, Nebuchadnezzar worships God with his words, but he denies God with his actions. He worships God with his words, but he denies God with his actions. With his mouth, he says that the God of Daniel, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that the God, the real, true, living God of the Bible, with his mouth, he says that he is the God above all other gods. But with his actions, Nebuchadnezzar shows that he worships another God. Not the God of the Bible, but the God of himself, the God of his ego. 
And he goes so far as to set up a statue and to, by force, try to coerce his entire kingdom to worship the same God he does, himself, his ego, his own pride. But then in chapter 4, we see the real, true, powerful God, the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the King of kings. We see him begin to humble this prideful king, Nebuchadnezzar. And so in chapter 4, verses 4 through 23 or so, we see that, that Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. He has a dream of a great tree that grows up into the sky, and then a messenger comes down from heaven to chop down this tree. This tree had grown up and it had all kinds of, of fruit and things growing on it, and this messenger comes down from heaven, chops down the tree, tears off the branches, destroys this tree, and leaves just a stump. And Nebuchadnezzar is troubled by this dream. He wants to know what it means. And when Nebuchadnezzar wants to know what a dream means, who does he go to? Daniel. He goes to Daniel, right? Daniel, the guy who interpreted his dream before. And he says, Daniel, interpret this dream for me. And Daniel's hesitant at first. Because Daniel knows that this dream is not good news for Nebuchadnezzar. And it is a dangerous game to tell bad news to a very powerful king with an anger problem, right? But that's what Daniel has to do. And so in, in verse 24 of chapter 4, we see Daniel's interpretation. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High. Who's the Most High? Is it Nebuchadnezzar? No, no it's God. This is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling place shall be with the beasts of the fields. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. You shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And for seven periods or seven years, seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump and the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. So Daniel has told him the interpretation of this dream. What is this? Nebuchadnezzar, you are the tree. That tree that grew up into heavens, that's you growing into power. And just as in your dream, someone came down from heaven to chop that tree at the, at the roots, you were about to be humbled. This big tree of you and your kingdom and your pride, it's about to be cut down, and God is going to send you to live in the fields. You're going to live with the beasts of the fields. You're going to be wet with the dew. You are going to be like a wild animal. You're going to go from being the most powerful, richest king in the entire world to being a homeless man sleeping on the streets. That's what's going to happen to you, Nebuchadnezzar. But, but in your dream, the stump was left. Because God's doing this to humble you. And when you come to your senses, when you see that you are not the king, but that God is, your kingdom is going to be restored to you. That's what Daniel says. And then he goes, and with that in mind, king, with that in mind, Nebuchadnezzar, let me give you some advice. And in verse 27, we see his advice. He says this, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins. 
Stop sinning. Turn back right now. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Nebuchadnezzar, stop sinning. Stop sinning, stop worshiping yourself, start worshiping God, and perhaps God will show you mercy that you don't deserve. Well, if we read on, we see Nebuchadnezzar's response to this. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar, and at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered, he's thought on this for 12 months, the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? He says, this kingdom, this is what I've built. I've built it by my power for my glory. It's mine and I am the God of it. And as soon as he says that, look what happens. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. Just a second here. How scared would you be if you were Nebuchadnezzar in this moment? You're sitting up there, you go, no, I'm not listening to this God. This is my kingdom. And then literally as you're talking, a voice comes from heaven, the kingdom has departed from you. Nebuchadnezzar must be shaking in his boots. He says, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall eat, you shall be made to eat the grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from among men. He ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of the heaven until his hair grew as long as the eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. He went from being the most powerful, richest king on the face of the earth to being a wild animal, a wild man. His hair is growing long. His nails are growing long. He's living outside. He's eating the grass his mind has completely left him. The king who ruled over the greatest empire in the world has been humbled in an instant. He's been humbled in an instant. God has shown his judgment. He has shown his power against Nebuchadnezzar. And for seven years, the most powerful king in the world lived with the beast of the field and ate the grass and rolled around in the dirt with his mind completely gone. Why? Well, I already said why, didn't I? See, Nebuchadnezzar's sin was obvious, wasn't it? His sin was pride. His sin was pride. Nebuchadnezzar, though he said that God was mighty, his real God was not the God of creation, not the God of the Bible, not the God of Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar's real God was Nebuchadnezzar. Well, he said that God was the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Nebuchadnezzar really saw himself as the Lord and the King, not only of Babylon, but he saw himself as the Lord and the king of his own life. 
See, while Nebuchadnezzar worshiped God with his words, his life worshiped something else. In Romans chapter 12, verse one, Paul says this. It says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to offer your bodies, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We use this word worship to talk about when we come into a room like this and we sing songs to God. And that's a form of worship, sure, but when scripture talks about worship, it's talking about what we give our lives to. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual worship. You see, guys, we were all made to worship. We were all made to be worshipers. We all worship something. You might not believe in God. You might be in here, maybe you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus. Maybe you think everything up here, everything I'm saying up here is nonsense. You go, I don't worship anything. You absolutely do. Just like Nebuchadnezzar did. Because worship is what you give your life to. What do you live your life in worship of? Coming into a room like this and singing songs, you might be worshiping God with your words, but are you worshiping him with your life? Nebuchadnezzar worshiped God with his words, but his life told a different story. His words said that the God of Daniel is king of kings and Lord of lords, but his life said that Nebuchadnezzar is king. Nebuchadnezzar is Lord. You worship me and I worship me. Nebuchadnezzar's sin was not just pride. His sin was idolatry. His sin was that he took himself and he put himself on the throne where God belongs. He lived his life in worship to himself rather than living his life in worship to God. And here's the thing, you guys. I said that every one of you in here, you worship something whether you realize it or not. And scripture tells me that every one of us in here on our own, we worship things other than God. We worship things other than God. We all have things in our lives that we worship, things in our lives that we give our life to, things that we desire, that we want more than anything else. James talks about this in the book of James, in James chapter one. He says this. He says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. We're tempted when we're lured away by our own desire, by the things that we want and then desire what we want when it has conceived, when it grows to be our greatest desire, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, it brings forth death. You see this idea of us desiring something more than we desire God, of us wanting something more than we want God, of us worshiping something rather than worshiping God, that is what sin is. Sin is when we want something else more than we want the God who made us. 
when we desire something else, anything else at all, more than we desire the God who made us. That's what sin is. It's taking something, anything, and putting it on the throne of our lives where God and only God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords belongs. When we allow that desire to grow desire for something other than God to grow bigger than our desire to love and serve and please the God who made us, we commit sin. I'll tell you guys a story. Maybe some of you have heard it before. So I use it a lot when I talk about sin. So if you've heard me speak, chances are you've heard this. Um, but I, I love Christmas. I love everything about Christmas. Uh, I love, I love the, the music. I love, I love sitting by the fire with the the, the stockings and, and I, I, you know, by the Christmas tree. I, I, love, I love all of it. And one of my favorite things about Christmas growing up was the candy. Because when I was a kid, I didn't get candy all the time, right? I, I didn't realize you could just go to a store and like buy it. Um, and, uh, and so candy only came at certain times and it was usually holidays. And one of those holidays where I got a lot of candy was Christmas. But at Christmas, you didn't just get any candy because at Christmas, you could get a Reese's chocolate tree. Now, in the, the years since I was a kid, they've started doing Reese's chocolate everything else. But when I was a kid, Reese's chocolate tree was a special thing because there's something different about the Reese's chocolate tree. The chocolate's a little bit softer than a Reese's cup. There's a little bit more peanut butter to chocolate ratio. It's just right. It kind of looks like a turd, but that's not the point. <laughs> Reese's chocolate tree is the ultimate Christmas candy. And, and uh, so I have... I have one sibling, I have a sister, she's two years older than me, and my sister is very much the oldest, right? Like she is, she just, in her personality and everything, she's very much the oldest. She's very like um, organized, she, was all, she always did her homework, she always had a, you know, over 4.0. I was very much the little brother, right? I was just like kind of the crazy one, the wild one, uh, the loud one, and, uh, and definitely the disorganized one, and, and that, that played out on Christmas morning as well, and so... When we would come in, we would get our stockings and we would, we would start getting our candy. I would go and I would grab my stocking by the toe and I would shake it and all of the candy would just fly out all over the living room, right? And my sister would sit there with her stocking. She'd take out the pieces one by one, you know, just kind of set them on the counter like, oh, that's nice. Oh, lovely, another egg. Um, not egg, that's Easter, whatever. Um, and... Uh, and I would eat all of my candy right away, right? By like 9 a.m. on Christmas morning, all my candy's gone, I'm sick, and it's worth it, right? My sister, though, she would take all the candy, and I remember this so vividly, she had a shoebox. I remember what it was. It was a limited two shoebox, which you guys probably don't remember limited two, but it was hot pink, and I had that little like early 2000s, late 90s flower on it. Anyway, so, so my sister had this shoebox that she kept her Christmas candy in. And she would eat like one piece of candy every other day until like March, right? So all my candy's long gone, but my sister still has all of her candy in the shoebox on her bedside table. And, and I remember there was like a week of Christmas vacation still after Christmas before I had to go back to school. And I woke up the morning after Christmas, my candy's long gone, and I walk by my sister's bedroom because it's on my way to the living room and her door's open and there on her bedside table, I see the limited two shoebox. And in that shoebox, I know that there's a Reese's chocolate treat. And in that moment, I have a choice to make. I have a choice between what's going to sit on the throne of my life. What God am I going to serve? Am I going to serve the God of the Bible, the maker of heaven and earth, who Psalm 24 says, 
the earth and everything in it belongs to him? Or am I going to serve the God of the Reese's chocolate tree? <laughs> and it's a ridiculous question, right? Because the, the answer is obvious. Serve the God that made everything, that spoke the universe into existence, not the God of sugar and kind of peanut butter, probably not, who knows what that stuff is. And you know what, that first day I made the right choice. And I said, no, I want to serve and trust and love God more than I want peanut butter and chocolate. But then the next day I woke up and now it had been two days since I had had a Reese's chocolate tree. And I walked by my sister's room and I see the shoebox, and I have the choice to make again. Do I choose God or do I choose the candy? And I made the right choice. But then the next day, now it's been three days, and, and my desire for that peanut butter and chocolate has grown, and it's grown, and it's grown. And I don't remember how long it took, but I do know for a fact that one day, my desire for peanut butter and chocolate was greater than my desire to follow and serve and honor and obey and glorify and worship the God of the universe. And so what did I do? I went and I took that candy that didn't belong to me and I ate it. And it sounds ridiculous, but in that moment, eating that candy that didn't belong to me, that I knew was wrong, I was committing cosmic treason against the king of the universe. I had chosen my own temporary satisfaction, a temporary sugar rush. I had chosen that over the God who made me and died for me. I had taken a candy, and I had placed it on the throne of my life where the God of the universe belongs. And I had said, Reese's is king of kings and lord of lords. And it's ridiculous and it's stupid, but we all do it. Every one of us, we take things that are not worth comparing to God and we allow our desire for them to grow and to grow and to grow. Instead of slamming the door on the temptation and saying, no, I'm not going to do that. Instead of planting ourselves and standing firm like Daniel, we just go a little bit. We take a peek every morning as we walk by. And eventually as our desire for that thing other than God grows and it eclipses our desire to love and serve and honor and glorify and worship God, we put that thing, whatever it is, on the throne of our lives. We worship it rather than God that is idolatry and that is sin. No matter what that sin is, for most of you it's probably not stealing candy, but you know what? I know for a fact that the general store, every year in camp, there's a lot of candy that goes missing. So you know what, for some of you, that thing on the throne, that is stealing candy. For many of you though, it's not. Maybe for some of you, that thing on the throne of your life, maybe it's, uh, maybe it's popularity. Maybe the thing that you desire above all else is to be popular. It's for people to look at you, to watch you, to think about how great you are, how smart you are. So what do you do? You lie in order to make that happen. Maybe you dress in a way to attract attention to yourself so that people will see you. And then maybe you'll feel like you're worth something. 
And so you take your own popularity, you put that on the throne of your life, and you kick God off of his throne, and you worship your popularity instead of the God that made you. That's sin, that's idolatry, that's treason against the king. Maybe for some of you, what you worship is money, what you worship is stuff. And so you steal, you do whatever you can to make a buck You're kicking God off the throne of your life. You're putting money in his place. Maybe for some of you, it's academics. The thing that you want more than anything else is to get those straight A's, to get those grades, to be that valedictorian, to get that scholarship, to get into that gate program, to get into that college a few years down the road. And so you do anything and everything you can in order to get that. Maybe it includes cheating. Maybe it doesn't even include cheating. Maybe it's just that you're so focused on your academics, so focused on doing well in school that you neglect reading your Bible, that you neglect worshiping God. And what you've done is you've taken God and you've kicked him off the throne of your life and you've put your grades where he belongs and you've worshiped your grades instead of him and you've offered yourself, your life, your body as a living sacrifice, not to the God who made you, but to your report card. For some of you, it's sports. For some of you, it's, it's pleasure. For some of you, it's attention. For some of you, it's popularity. For some of you, it's money. For some of you, it's academics. For some of you, it's a Reese's chocolate tree. But I know for a fact that every single one of us in here, we have something that we desire, something that we are tempted to put on that throne in our lives and to worship instead of God. For Nebuchadnezzar, it was himself. It was his pride. It was his ego. It was his power. Listen to the description of Romans chapter one, this description of sin that we get there. It's in Romans 1.21, if you wanna turn there. It's a powerful description of what all sin is. It says this, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And claiming to be wise, they became fools. And listen to this part. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And then verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. Guys, that's what sin is. Sin is when we trade the truth about God for a lie and we worship the creation, something else, anything else rather than the creator who is blessed forever. When we exchange the truth about who God is and what he's done, the truth that we were made to know and love and serve him, when we exchange that for a lie, the lie that popularity will fulfill us, the lie that more money will make us happy, the lie that that getting good grades will save us, will make us worthwhile, we exchange the truth of God for the lies of this world and we worship creation rather than creator. The creator, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the only one who is worthy of our praise, the only one who is worthy to sit on the throne of our lives. 
Sin is when we put anything else there, when we worship anything else other than God. Not singing worship to, to a candy bar like we sing worship to God in here, but worshiping it with our lives, with our actions. Worshiping it through what we do, through what we think, through how we move through life. That's what sin is. It is cosmic treason against the king of the universe. And every single one of us does it. Romans 3.23 says we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all kicked God off of the throne of our lives and we've begun worshiping something else. And Romans 6.23 says that what we deserve for that treason, for that great crime against a high king, we deserve death says the wages of sin is death. What we deserve for our sin, what we have earned for our sin is death. The king of the universe is right and just to bring his wrath down upon us because we have committed treason against him by kicking him off of the throne in our lives. The wages of our sin, what we've earned for our sin is death. It is separation from God. It is the wrath of God. It is eternal punishment in hell. That's what every single one of us deserves for our sin. That's what every single one of us has earned by the treason that we've committed against the king of the universe. But that same king, that holy, righteous, mighty king of the universe who deserves to sit on the throne of our lives, he is also a merciful king. So jumping back to the story of Nebuchadnezzar, God humbled him for his pride. But after seven years, seven years in the wilderness, God was merciful and allowed Nebuchadnezzar to come back to his senses and we see this in verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to the heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and I praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Jumping down to 37, it says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for his works are right, his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Guys, we all put something else on the throne of our lives, but God is merciful and he is able to humble us and to restore himself to the throne where he rightfully belongs. I mentioned earlier Romans 6.23 says that the wages of our sin is death, that we de what we deserve for our sin is death, but that's not the end of the verse. It says the wages of our sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Tomorrow night, we are going to be blessed to be able to talk about that free gift, how we have access to that free gift, how we can be saved from the penalty for our sin, for our treason against the king that we rightfully deserve. We're going to talk about the king's incredible mercy towards us tomorrow night. But today, I just want to leave you with this. What's on the throne of your life? What is that thing that sits on the throne of your life? What do you worship? There are many of you in here 
who worship God with your words, but your lives are lived as sacrifice to something else. You come in here and you, you sing and you praise the name of Jesus, but the worship of your life is not in line with the worship of your mouth. And you say you worship God, but you live your life in worship to someone or something else. What's on the throne of your life? If it's anything other than God, you're living in treason to the king of the universe. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you. God, we know that this is heavy and it's difficult and it's painful. But God, I pray that by your spirit, you would give us insight into our own hearts, that we would be able to honestly look at our lives, honestly look at ourselves and ask that question, who or what do I worship? God, I pray for, for these kids that they would, they would see what's on the throne of their lives. And if it's not you, Father, I pray that by your mercy and grace, they would see that. And by the power of your spirit, they would put you on the throne of their lives and start living their lives in worship and sacrifice to you. And God, even for those kids who are living in your service, who are living a life of worship towards you, I pray that they would see those things that could be rivals, those things in their life that they love, that they desire, even if they're good things. God, that you would give them the power to keep those loves and those desires in check and to never let those things eclipse their desire for you, never let those things become greater in their thinking than you are because you are king of kings, you are Lord of lords, and you alone deserve worship. Love you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.